This morning's scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the first five verses. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me is a very little thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart, that each one will receive his commendation from God. The Word of God. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this passage for us this morning, Father. That you would search the depths of our hearts and minds, Father, to help us to just better understand what it is, Lord, you want us to take from this, Father. And Lord, I pray that the words I speak be not of myself, but be glorifying unto you to enable us all to see the message that you have for us. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen. As we focus on this morning's passage, I think it's important like it is any other week for us to think about the context and remember what, what it was that Paul was writing about to the Corinthian church. <clears throat> now, I realize that we've been going over this for many Sundays, and we've been going back to this central theme, but it's important that we go back to this central theme, because if we don't go back to the central theme and, and seem to understand where it is we're at and what the overall theme that Paul's talking about, then we run the risk of not being able to understand this passage the way that Paul wanted us to understand this passage. And if you remember, there's a division in the church at Corinth. There are many divisions, but there is a specific division that Paul's dealing with here. And it was a big problem. It was a division that was caused by this virus of pride. It was a division that was caused by people thinking too much of themselves and wanting themselves to be right. Unfortunately, they weren't mature Christians, but they were babes in Christ. (coughs) Excuse me. I guess I haven't fully recovered from last week. As babes in Christ, their actions looked more like unbelievers than believers. And one of the biggest sources of the division in the Corinthian church was this team mentality, that there were those who were on Team Paul, and there were those who were on Team Apollos, and to a lesser extent, there were those who were on Team Cephas or Peter. And not only did they just not enjoy the teachings of the other, but they kind of ridiculed the other, and they talked down about the other. You know, I'm on Team Paul, and I don't associate with those low lives that are on Team Apollos or Team Cephas or whatever the case may be. The situation had gotten quite ugly. And not only did they not associate with them, but they looked down upon them. And they made them feel like second-class citizens. <coughs> Thank you. It was a terrible situation that was absolutely destroying the church from within. In fact, it was so bad that Paul begins addressing this issue in chapter 1, and here we are in chapter 4, and Paul's still dealing with this issue and telling them how bad it is for the church and how it's going to destroy their church. 
Now, sometimes when we read these stories, we're tempted to think, well, that was a church in Corinth. We don't have to worry about those issues. But I will tell you and assure you that these types of situations arise in churches all over the country because that's part of what we as fallen humans tend to gravitate toward, right? We like to separate ourselves. We think that our part of the separation is better than the other part of the separation and we're right and they're wrong and it's all coming from that five-letter word called pride. That's what it's all about. (coughs) But here we get into a specific scenario, and they play a little game. And the little game is, let's evaluate the preacher, right? Let's, Let's see how good that the preacher is. And don't think this doesn't happen, because it does. Thank you. So the pastors get ranked, and they get ranked in many different categories, right? They get ranked based on the size of the church. They get ranked on how many people show up on Sunday morning. They get ranked on the number of people that come down and make professions of faith. They get ranked on the number of people that are baptized. They get ranked on their level of education, how many books that they have published. You name it, if there is a way for people to rank them, They do it, and then they start the criticism. They start the judgment that we're going to talk about here in this passage. Now, I believe that it's a very common temptation. It's a common temptation for everyone. It's not that we enjoy one leader more than the other. We don't stop there. If we just enjoy them or don't necessarily enjoy them, that's fine. We all have different tastes. The problem is, is whenever we kind of focus our sights in and we're so critical in that we are judgmental that I don't like him, I'm on team Paul. I don't like him, I'm on team Apollos. And there we have the split and therein lies the different groups and the divisions of the church. Now I want to make a point and I think it's an important point. We're not talking about evaluating leaders based on what they're doing okay if we have a leader that is caught in sin and that's what they're up to then I think it's definitely something that the church needs to deal with because we're called to do that that's a totally different situation than these types of evaluative processes that Paul's dealing with if they're caught in sin and they refuse to repent then the church needs to deal with that issue Also, if you have a teacher or leader that teaches a lot of false doctrine, same type situation. If they're teaching you things that aren't biblical, things that aren't theologically sound, the church has to deal with that type of issue as well. Instead, what Paul's focusing on here are these arbitrary type issues. I don't like the way he speaks. I don't like the fact that he coughs during his sermon. Whatever the case may be, it's those type of issues that Paul's dealing with in this, in this passage. So I believe that this morning's passage or passages can aid us in understanding how to look at leaders, myself, any other leaders that we may have within this church, and honestly, each one of us have our own ministry or should have our own ministry, and we are all leaders of that ministry. So as we look at verse 1, and he begins here, 
with an evaluation process or an evaluative process. This is how one should regard us <coughs> as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. So Paul's referring to us here in this passage. He's specifically referring to himself and Apollos. This is how you're supposed to or you should evaluate us as church leaders is the point that Paul is making. He's applying it to any leader in any church setting. I'm very thankful that the ESV version that I have on the screen this morning uh, translates that word as a servant. The Greek word's huperetes, huperetes, and it means servant. Now, if you look at the Old King James, if anybody's got the Old King James, you're going to see that it translates the word as minister. Minister sometimes carries with it this idea of honor, dignity held in high esteem. That is not what Paul's trying to portray here. Instead, he's portraying them as a servant, not someone that is honored, not someone that is necessarily held up in high esteem. In fact, it is just the opposite that Paul's portraying. Huperetes actually means a slave. So, as this is how one should regard us as slaves of Christ. That's the point that Paul's making, that he is nothing more than a slave. Actually, the Greek word means the lowest level of the galley, those that are in the bottom of the ship, those that are doing the oaring, those that have no specific task other than to break their backs and oar, propel the ship forward. That's, that's the idea that's being conveyed here with this term. Those were that were in the lower galley, it was a very menial task. They merely sat and pulled the oar. They didn't try to navigate. They didn't work the rudder. They didn't tie any knots or use any sails or anything like that. That was the very lowest of the low on the ship, and they were the lowest slave on the ship. And that's what point that Paul is trying to convey here in this passage, that he is a servant and that Apollos is a servant. There was, there was no special honor that was to be attached to either himself or Apollos. Now remember, this isn't the first time that Paul's mentioned this. We mentioned it also in chapter 3 when he asked the question, Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We are nothing, I think is exactly what he said. He wanted to make sure that there was no special honor that, were being, that was being attached to them to deserve any sort of glory from different people in the congregation. He's basically saying, Preaching wasn't my idea. I was very fine on the road to Damascus when Christ struck me down, blinded me, and basically set me on this path that I had no choice in. He didn't do it on his own volition. God called him out to serve him. Thus, in that, only God should be glorified. Only God should be glorified in the process. No one is glorified for doing what they're supposed to do, right? That's sort of the point that Paul's making here. They are slaves of Christ, as Paul refers to them. Now, that's in contrast to being slaves of who or whom? The church. 
or the congregation. And I think that's an important distinction. We are slaves of Christ, not slaves of congregation, not slaves of churches. And you say, well, what's the danger in that? The danger in that comes from then gradually and slowly becoming people pleasers. And it can happen. I will assure you that it happens. There is always that temptation there. It is hard to maintain that sense of being a slave to Christ and not necessarily a slave to a congregation because we all have an internal desire to be liked, right? We all want to be liked. We want to be pleasing to others. The problem with that is it's so easy to lose your footing and drown in that sea of approval. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we do that, when we're worried about pleasing all of you, then I don't necessarily serve God. Because I'm worried about what you think of what I say and not what God wants me to say or what his word instructs me to say. And bad things come from that. When we worry too much about what people think, we compromise God's word. because we don't want to come off as being offensive or hurt anyone's feelings. So we have to be careful that we don't compromise the Word of God in order to please people or please congregations or please churches. Paul then says that leaders are stewards of the mysteries of God. They are stewards of the mysteries of God. What's a steward? know what a stewardess is, right? You have a stewardess on a plane, they sort of take care of you. They take care of the people, but at the same time, they guard and protect everyone to make sure no one gets out of line and does what they're not supposed to do. If you want someone, you, or you want something, you ask the stewardess. If it's proper, she'll get it for you. If it's not proper, she's not going to get it for you. If you get unruly, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, they... They ultimately answer, not to you, but to the captain. That's ultimately the boss of the stewardess. They do what he tells them to do. They guard, protect, and serve. In New Testament times, stewards were hired to take care of homes and farms. They were sort of the overseer of people that owned large farms. They were property managers. And as Christians, in a general sense, we're all stewards, in that we're all stewards of the gifts that Christ gives us, and that we have to make sure that we protect them, that we serve Christ and when, as we're using those gifts, and that he is glorified through the use of those gifts. We dispense them out to help others in their walk with Christ. So as individual Christians, we all have some sort of stewardship occupation or duty. So Paul here refers to himself as a steward, someone who hands out, oversees, protects, serves the mysteries of God. So what are the mysteries of God to which Paul is referring to here? Mysteries are something that were hidden and now are revealed. (coughs) You see that term quite often in the New Testament, and that's, in fact, what it's 
referencing are the teachings of the New Testament. Those things that were hidden in the Old Testament that are now revealed in the New The gospel. The gospel message is a mystery. And so Paul says that he and Apollos and every other leader in the church is a steward of the New Testament. God gave Paul his teachings and it was up to Paul to distribute them out, to guard them, to make sure that they weren't changed or adulterated in any way. You know, I think I made the analogy a couple weeks ago of a table waiter, right? So Paul refers to himself as sort of a slave or a servant of Christ and it's sort of like being a table waiter. Table waiters, they don't own anything, They don't prepare the food. They don't buy the food. They're merely merely there to serve you the food. And so Paul sort of, we made that analogy that that leaders in the church are sort of like table waiters. We don't own the message. I didn't write the message. God gives us the message and we are here to give it to you. (coughs) It should be noted that Good table waiters don't come out and and look at the food and think, hmm, I don't think she or he's going to like this. So I'm going to go around and I'm going to take my own spices and I'm going to put some more spice on it and give it a little bite here or maybe a little bit more salt so that in my eyes this young person won't like that food that that the cook has prepared for him. So I'm going to change it up a little bit to give them what I think they're going to like. That's not a very good table waiter, is it? When we place an order in a restaurant, we want that food to come from the cook unchanged by the table waiter. If the table waiter changes the food to what they think should be the correct food, we're not going to be happy about it. It's the same way with the leaders in the church. We should be wise to follow those same rules. God, as the ultimate and best cook ever, gives us the food that we're all supposed to eat, regardless if we're 5 or 95 or 105. The food doesn't change. It's not up to me, and should never happen, that I change the food because I think you'd make it, it might be more palatable to you. Nor should any church leader do that. We shouldn't take God's word because we think the people need this or the people don't need that. That's an awful mistake. And that will end up hurting those that are consuming as well as ourselves or as the waiter himself or herself. Verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So when you have a steward, again, he's talking to a church leader of some sort. You want someone who is trustworthy, right? You want someone who is trustworthy. You want someone who's going to give you the dish that you ordered and not change it. You want someone who you can be assured that whenever the cook's given them that steak, cooked the way that the cook wanted to cook it, It's going to get to you, that you can trust them with that. 
It doesn't require that the steward be educated, that they be glib, that they be brilliant, whatever the case, it's not a requirement. It's just the requirement that they be found faithful, that you can trust them, that they're not going to insert their own opinions or agendas or change things or water down things or make things more harsh than they otherwise should be. He doesn't have to be creative or progressive, just needs to be faithful, and we need to make sure that we can trust him or her. Time and time again throughout the New Testament, good servants are referred to as faithful, trustworthy. They are trustworthy. The parable of the talents, Jesus says, well done, my good and faithful servant. There are many times when you absolutely know that the food that you're about to give the person that ordered it is going to be bitter. It's not going to taste good. But it's not up to the waiter to make that food taste better. It's not. I mean, there have been moments in this church and from this pulpit where I know that the things I say are hard going down. And I'm sorry. But I don't change them. I cannot change them. No matter how bitter they taste, that's not my job. I merely give what God has already served up and cooked. I think we know and I think we understand that. We're not responsible for the food or how it tastes. But how many times... How many times do we order something and we get it back and we don't like what it takes and who catches our wrath? It ain't the cook! Is it? It's the waiter or waitress. This is horrific food! They don't go talk to the cook. It's the waitress. It's the table waiter. This is terrible! You expect me to eat this? But the waitress didn't do anything. She's merely giving you the food that the the chef or cook prepared for you. Ultimately, your fight isn't with the waiter or waitress, it's with the cook. But we tend to sort of take it out on the messenger, don't we? It's human nature. No, we don't go back and voice our opinion or displeasure with the cook. <clears throat> Too oftentimes we ridicule and are mean to the waiter or waitress. Again, we don't cook the food. We don't add the spice to the food or the flavor to the food. God did. And he knows what food that everyone needs and what food is the most nourishing at all times. So we take this analogy and it leads us into verses 3 and 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but, and, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So Paul had reached an amazing point in his ministry. He did not care what the patron said about the food. Didn't bother him one bit. He knew that the cook prepared it. 
He knew that everything was on the cook and everything the cook made was perfect. And it was, he wasn't going to let that affect him in the least. He says, if you don't like what I had to say, so be it. I'm merely serving you what God has given me. And I will tell you that that's next level. I will tell you that that is a very hard task. We all struggle with this. If you have ever taught on any level, then you know that there is a desire for you to be able to be liked by who you're teaching or for them to think that you've done a good job. It is innate within all of us. But Paul had risen to the level where it didn't bother him. Not that he loved any less. Or not that he cared about it any less, but it did not bother him what they thought of his teaching or what he, they thought of his serving the congregation. We want to make good impressions. We want to present the best tasting food. Food that everyone likes and everyone enjoys. That's just humanness. But that is hard. It is difficult. We all like affirmation. It helps us. It encourages us. It keeps us moving forward. Yet Paul had reached that ultimate point in his ministry where it didn't matter who he was talking to. He knew the cook, trusted the cook, didn't care if it was bitter, sour, or delicious to those who were receiving it. Because he knew it was what was best for them. If people thought that his Sunday sermon was awful, he didn't care. Didn't bother him in the least because he knew that's what God wanted him to say. Conversely, if people thought that it was the most wonderful message that he had ever heard, he'd take the compliment, remember that he wasn't responsible for the food, that it was the cook that was responsible for that food. He didn't prepare it. Additionally, Paul says, not only do what you all say about me not matter, but I don't even do it myself. I don't even rate myself. I don't go home and think about, did that come across okay or not? That even takes us a step further. Because I'm sure you've all taught kids, adults, whatever, and you've gone back at night and you've replayed it in your mind. And you think, did that come across right? Did, do you think I made any sense at all? Was that okay? Paul's like, I don't even judge myself. Because if I judge myself on the basis of those things, then I'm missing the bigger picture. Just let me say, it takes a great deal of faith and trust to get to that point in a ministry. Because I fight it, I think we all fight it. And... Every leader that's ever taught anything in a church does this on some level. Paul says in verse 4 that he is not even aware that he even grades himself. Now, Paul's not talking about sin here. He's talking about these arbitrary type grading or whatever it may be that we look at a pastor or a leader and think, well, they didn't do a very good job or whatever, and we choose sides because of that. 
I don't even think about it, Paul says. Why? Because I'm not the ultimate judge. Because all I would think about is what I hear, how I did it, what went into me preparing it, what you all see and hear. And he said, that's not, what's, that's not what matters. Because I could equip myself, but it doesn't matter because it is God or the Lord who ultimately judges me. Not men, not even myself. Why is all that important? Because Paul says there will be a time. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul says that there will be a time when all of his servants are judged. We talked about that a few weeks ago in chapter 3. We talked about receiving rewards for the things that we do as Christians or as leaders (coughs) for those good works. And he's saying, wait, don't make those judgments now because, quite frankly, we don't know anything. We're not equipped to make that judgment. Why is it? Because what's most important are the things that are unseen. And that is left up to the Lord. I don't know your heart. I don't know your motivations. You don't know my heart. You don't know my motivations. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes my heart feels pure, my motivations feel pure and clean, and sometimes they're not. We all experience that, right? Sometimes you come to church because you want to dine with God, and sometimes you can't hardly drag yourself here, right? I don't know those times about you and you don't know those times about me. So don't you think that it's unfair for me to judge you and you to judge me? It's the point Paul's making. Unless you really know and understand the motivations and the deep things within my heart and soul and what makes me tick or what makes you tick, only then do you have the information available to you that would give you the ability to truly make a judgment in that situation and that's never going to happen I'm never going to know your innermost motivations and desires and you're never going to know my innermost motivations and desires God will the Lord will and so Paul's saying that's why we leave it up to the Lord we don't separate a church and divide a church and say I'm team Paul or I'm team Apollos or I'm team Cephas based on superficial things that we know nothing about It is the deeper, the hidden things of the heart that matter the most. And we leave those up to God. And that's what Paul's asking us to do. Don't judge or be so critical of the leaders based on what you perceive because you perceive or we perceive very little. It is God that has the full wisdom and the full knowledge and the full perception perception to be able to make that true judgment. But we fight that because our our natural inclinations is to do that. But Paul's saying, no, don't. Fight that. Push back against that because that's coming from a sense of pride. So Paul gives us 
an example, a beautiful example, that don't judge the leaders. Leaders don't even judge yourself, Paul says. But it is only God that is to judge us all. And it is that time, whenever Christ returns, where he judges us, that we will receive our praise or not. And we talked about rewards a few weeks ago. So let us strive to live our lives as faithful servants, with pure hearts, with good intentions, knowing that sometimes we're going to fail at that. But it is our goal to not. Our goal is to be pure, to be faithful, and to serve God in all ways and through all things. Amen? Let's pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for these words that are filled with godly wisdom. Lord, help us to understand that we don't know hearts. We don't know the most most important things. And yet we pick criteria, Lord, that is superficial and short-sighted, and we judge based on that. Let us leave that to you. Let us just trust and confidence that you know our hearts and you know our motivations and that you will give commendation where needed when you return, Father. We just give you all thanks and praise, for it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and sing the closing hymn.